0: Hey there, Lisa here. I hope you're staying safe and sane. It appears North Carolina has flattened the curve, but the number of coronavirus cases is still rising. Governor Roy Cooper has begun loosening restrictions, and many businesses reopened this past weekend. WFAE is committed to keeping you informed each step of the way. For the latest on the coronavirus and its impact on the community, make sure to go to WFAE.org. That said, let's start the episode. It's Thursday, May 14th, and 102 days separate us from the scheduled Republican National Convention in Charlotte. From WFAE, Charlotte's NPR news source, I'm Lisa Worf. And I'm Steve Harrison. And this is the Inside Politics Podcast, the RNC in Charlotte. (laughs) North Carolina has taken its first tentative step toward reopening, but there are so many questions about what life will look like three months from now.
1: Will schools open in the fall? Will people gather for concerts and sports events? And yes, will thousands of people really come to
0: Charlotte for the RNC? In this episode, we're going to invite a fellow reporter on to kick around some of the possibilities for the convention And dig into the latest on how the coronavirus is reshaping political dynamics in North Carolina.
1: This week, the Democratic National Convention Committee paved the way for the possibility of a virtual convention. And RNC chair Ronna McDaniel will talk to reporters today. But there's no indication she'll be pushing for that same flexibility. Late last month, she said it was full steam ahead.
0: And on that note, we're going to get some help from Eric Spanberg of the Charlotte Business Journal via Zoom. Hey, Eric. Hey, Lisa. How's it going? It's going all right. And so
1: like we talked about earlier, um, it'll be 100 days until what's supposed to be the start of the Republican National Convention. So let's start there. What do we think is going to happen? Is this going to go on as planned? What's it going to look like? Well, I I
2: think it's going to look different. Uh, There's no doubt about that. Uh, Steve, you were probably on the call when Marshall Lee Kelly, uh, who is the head of the convention, made the comment that you know, the, the last thing they really wanted was that TV shot of people wearing masks, delegates in masks, but <laughs> she all but conceded that would be the case. You know, one of the things that's unspoken largely here is that the estimate has been 50,000 all along. I think a lot of people realistically are looking at a much smaller number. You're going to have media outlets that don't send people or that don't send as many people. You're going to have a much smaller corporate presence i would imagine who's going to want to put their executives in a possibly dangerous situation when you're talking about public health now of course we have some months before then but it's getting closer and closer and the thing that stands out to me most about this rnc discussion of late is when the city council took that vote the 6 to 5 vote and a lot of us seized on the braxton winston quote about you know stop the charade but the the quote that really caught my attention was Ed Driggs, the Republican, who said, I think it's pretty obvious that there's a good chance the convention is going to have to be modified and possibly even canceled. And I think when you have a Republican saying things like this, and he's not the only one, that really shows you that this is not going to be what everyone thought it would be as recently as six months ago.
1: So the Democrats are going to expect it to kind of pave the way for a virtual convention. With the way the election's shaping up, I mean, I think it's gonna be so unlikely that they have any sort of gathering in Milwaukee because they are going to be prosecuting the president on his handling of the virus. And so it would be really, to me, difficult for them to get people together and then risk there being a spike of infections and kind of undermining their whole case against President Trump. So that's where I see them going, but I've kind of wondered with the RNC, whether the president might take his show on the road are there going to be states that are going to allow him to speak to a whole lot of people?
0: Yeah, I mean, one one thing I wonder about is, is maybe he does come to Charlotte and the convention is here, but it's basically the president virtually from Charlotte. And so you can still check off the boxes and you don't have to worry about holding a super spreader event.
2: Yeah, and I, I think that both of you are correct in this idea of probably a dramatically scaled back convention, uh, but enough of a convention so that everyone can kind of save face and say Charlotte had the RNC and maybe the president speaks virtually. Maybe the president goes to some football stadiums in the region and, and speaks, Uh, you know, I could certainly see a governor or two in some red states saying, you know what, if they don't want to do it full bore, we will kind of thing. Uh, But I, I think that when you, you bring it back closer to home here in Charlotte, one of the things that will be, over pretty closely is this was advertised as an event that would bring in 50,000 people and generate $121 million. And when you're talking about a battered tourism sector, when those things don't come to pass, understandably, it's still going to be, I think, uh, you know, something that causes a little bit of indigestion for some
1: people.
0: If it were a virtual event, what, what would have to change in order to make that happen?
1: So I think kind of like the the Democrats are going to have to do this week, I think the Republican National Committee would have to change its rules to allow delegates to vote remotely. And that's something that they haven't been willing to talk about because, of course, they're still going full speed ahead. I guess the big date, you know, this convention's August 24th. So I think you get around July 1st, early July, mid-July. That's kind of the uh, Fisher cut bait moment, right? Because you have to start building the stage and really getting ready and spending money
0: I think about that $50 million grant, too, as far as security and what that means when you're juggling all this uncertainty, Um, how you pull down that money and how you spend that money just a few months ahead of time.
2: I think there are a couple of interesting sort of sidebar stories that we've seen here in recent days. You had the hiring of the doctor who served in the uh, W. Bush administration who is helping the RNC try to navigate public health as far as the convention. And then you had the uh, development with Louis DeJoy, the Greensboro businessman, who has been uh, named Postmaster General. He is the lead fundraiser for the local organizing committee. And when I spoke to John Laster, the CEO of the organizing committee, one of the things he said was that they hope to be at their $70 million fundraising target by mid-June when Louis DeJoy leaves. And I said, well, so where are you now? And he said, we're over 50 million. that's a lot of money to raise. And I, I know the Trump campaign has done very well, but that's a lot of money to raise. And particularly at a time when even John Laster said, it's really difficult to do this virtually. You don't have the typical fundraisers. You don't have you know, sort of the, the typical backslapping events that really get people to open up their wallets. So I think you, you got a lot of moving parts here as you head toward that July 1st date that Steve's talking about.
0: Now, as far as reopening North Carolina, we're now in phase one, which means many businesses can open, and they did that over the weekend. South Park Mall and Concord Mills had lots of people, and many not wearing masks. And that's something that the state and Mecklenburg County health officials have urged, but they haven't required at this point. What's that debate been like? I know, Eric, you've, you've listened in to part of it on the local level.
2: Yeah, so Mecklenburg County has this uh, business roundtable, this group of 40 civic and business leaders. Dina DiOrio, the county manager, leads the meetings, and this week they were talking about what you just mentioned, the opening weekend, and Dina DiOrio had been out to South Park Mall, and other people had been out and about, and they were alarmed by the fact that people are not wearing masks or not enough people are wearing masks. And I think one of the really interesting aspects of this is when you look at what's happened with the county, remember they had a much more stringent stay at home order. And then late April, they went into the state and the governor's three phase reopening plan. And I think the political dynamics of the county sort of saying, okay, we're going to have to ease up here. That feeds into the fact that there is not a mandate and they're not going to have a local mandate. It doesn't sound like for masks.
1: And I think if you go back to late March, when this really first started and stay at home started, I think people were really scared. I think across the board, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, I think there was a genuine real concern about this. But over the weeks have gone on in terms of, uh, you know, seeing more data, flattening the curve, et cetera. It's harder for kind of top down public health mandates to take hold. And. And part of that is just people kind of going into their own partisan camps and and digging in their heels. That's part of it. But I do think it's also people who have kind of looked at the data and seen that the curve has flattened. Hospitals aren't going to be overwhelmed. And they're starting to make some decisions based on their own.
2: I think that, you know, it's just the basic human factor of people having cabin fever and getting stir crazy. And I I think that makes people or at least a a portion of people just say, you know what, I'm tired of this. I'm just going to go do what I want to do. That may be potentially very dangerous and harmful in terms of public health. But I I think there is a fair amount of that mentality out there right now.
0: Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, back to what you were saying, Steve, too, as far as some of the the numbers and the data, and you keep on seeing, you know, such flattening that the peak keeps on being pushed out further and further, that there isn't this urgency anymore. You know, there's this thought of how do you live a normal life if this is still going to be continuing for many, many months?
1: And there was the question, like you talked about, the, the peak kind of getting pushed out, which I think is is very much the case. Um, but then there was kind of this this same question this week of, you know, the, the county has been running a model for the past five or six weeks forecasting this huge, dramatic increase in cases and the hospitals being overwhelmed. And first, it was going to be overwhelmed in mid-May, then June, now July 14th. And, you know, I talked to one of the creators of the model the county is using from the University of Pennsylvania, and he's saying, he said, look, this isn't appropriate to use anymore. This model is geared for the beginning of an outbreak, not where we are now, where cases have leveled. So you know, modeling is hard, predicting the future is hard, but it seems like in this case, the idea of this huge explosion of cases in the hospitals being overwhelmed doesn't seem like it's going to happen, at least based on how people are behaving today.
0: Steve, back to that model, what was the county's response about why they are using that still at this point?
1: So the the deputy health director said that he interprets the guidance on the model as being a little different. He says that the, the model says you're not supposed to use it past peak infection, and the county's interpretation was that peak infection was the point where um, more people have been infected than are susceptible. So if you think about that in Mecklenburg County, I mean, that's half a million people, 600,000 people. And then the University of Pennsylvania said, no, we don't see it that way. We see it as the point at which new cases start to level and you hit a plateau, which is really where Mecklenburg, Mecklenburg hit that point probably a month ago, and we've just been kind of bouncing around. You know, some weeks up, some weeks down for the past month. And this week, Mecklenburg County said it's not going to use that model from the University of Pennsylvania anymore.
2: And I think one thing, another thing that's going on here is, uh, Steve, you're absolutely right about the numbers. But I think that we've heard so much about the surge and flattening the curve that I think in the minds of many people, like once that doesn't happen, that they almost think like, oh, okay, well, there's nothing to worry about, which, of course, you know, it's not gone. It's not like cases aren't going to continue and there won't continue to be sick people. But I think in the minds of the public from focusing on those factors so much, they just think, well, this thing's on its way out.
0: What is the case for not requiring people to wear face masks? What is the what is the state and Mecklenburg County, their reasoning for not doing that? That's a good
2: question. Steve, do you know the answer? I mean, from listening to the, you know, the the conversations, I heard Gibby Harris and the county manager just saying, in essence, well, we don't have a mandate, we're not going to have a mandate, but we're going to try, you know, public information and awareness campaigns, but they never really gave any concrete reason as to why they chose not to do that.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. And it's a question of whether, you know, I I think, you know, they were allowed uh, to deem businesses essential, not essential, limit the size of gatherings. Um, it is an interesting question whether, if they wanted to, could they do a mask mandate? And I don't know. I mean, legally, would that fly? Other cities That's have been doing question.
2: it, right? So, well, yeah. and it's also been interesting, Lisa. You know, uh, Dina DiOrio mentioned that Senator Tom Tillis had uh, told her during a phone call this week that he's in favor of businesses having sort of, uh, no mask, no service signs, to put pressure on people to wear those masks. Uh, And so it's, I think from the political side, they want the businesses to handle it. And then there was a a retail lobbyist uh, who was also part of this meeting who said, well, the last thing businesses want to do after they've been closed and they're under all this financial pressure is to alienate any potential customer uh, and, and also, He gave an example of teenagers working in a store and having to tell people who are as old as their parents, you have to wear a mask or you have to leave. So there's a lot of hot potato going on here.
1: I think the Tillis thing is just is so interesting that, you know, if you look at across the state, most of the elected Republicans are really moving um, away from Cooper and supporting his plan to reopen but Tillis has, has taken this almost completely different position. I mean, if you listen to his town halls, he's been doing a lot of these telephone town halls with constituents. He has supported the governor, talks about the importance of uh, flattening the curve, public, you know. And then this idea, like you said, that, that businesses, he, he would like businesses to have, you know, the uh, no mask, no service. He's just gone off in a completely different direction than the rest of his party in North Carolina. And I think we'll probably talk about that a little bit later, but it's just fascinating to me that that's the route he's taken.
2: Yeah, I agree, but I do have to wonder what Phil Berger and Tim Moore and some of his other former colleagues in the North Carolina legislature might be thinking as this divergence in in partisan opinion is beginning to creep out, so
0: we'll see. Okay, we're going to take a break now. And yes, indeed, when we get back, we are going to get into more of those political dynamics and look at how candidates are talking about reopening North Carolina. That's coming up on the Inside Politics podcast, the RNC in Charlotte. Hey,
1: folks, today's podcast was made possible by listeners like you. Thank you to the listeners who submitted their questions on WFAE.org slash InsidePolitics. And thank you to the listeners who made a contribution to WFAE to support breaking news and in-depth reporting. If you're enjoying today's episode and learning something new from Inside Politics, the RNC in Charlotte, make sure to give this podcast a rating and review in your favorite podcast app. And if you want to support the podcast even further, become a member of WFAE with a donation of any amount. Five, ten, fifteen dollars, you name it. Just hit the donate button on WFAE.org slash inside politics. And thanks. Let's pick up again where we left off, kind of about the politics of reopening. And I think it's been really interesting that Governor Cooper seems to have found this kind of sweet spot in terms of reopening where he has let the other southern states like Georgia, Tennessee, go first. And North Carolina seems to be kind of drafting behind them. And he's been able to kind of really not get a lot of attention put on him as the state starts to reopen.
2: Well, yeah, I I think there's so many interesting threads to this. Uh, One of them is uh, we were talking about uh, this Washington Post story uh, offline. We were talking about it in terms of the popularity of governors versus the president. and uh, Roy Cooper was right up there, 74 percent approval in terms of the way he's handled this. And there was another development this week that really showed me, uh, I guess, some of the political aspects of this. Uh, Dan Forrest, the uh, lieutenant governor, who, of course, is Republican, running against Roy Cooper, uh, he, he wrote a letter with five other Republicans who are members of Council of State asking for them to have a larger role in the reopening, which tells me that they want to have not only more say, but they want to have their perspective out there, because Roy Cooper's taking a lot of the limelight right now.
1: You know, and I think it it goes back to what we talked about just a little while ago with with Tom Tillis kind of supporting him. I mean, I think I think for for Senator Tillis, he can have two things. One, he believes that going slow is the best policy in terms of public health. But at the same time, I'm sure they've kind of looked at the numbers and, and seen that Governor Cooper is very popular. And that's not a bad place to be.
0: Yeah, it's certainly an intriguing time about how do you campaign in a in a time of coronavirus and especially when you are the um, challenger as Dan Forrest is, you know, and Cal Cunningham, where do you fall on this?
2: Well, I think it's going to be really interesting to see as we get closer to the election can Tillis maintain this support of Cooper might be an incorrect phrase, but aligning with governor's strategies. At the same time, obviously, he has to be careful not to alienate the base Trump voter. And Tom Tillis, better than anyone, knows uh, what the risks are there. So it's going to be a really interesting conversation to see how he tries to thread that needle as we get into September, October.
1: I kind of said earlier that the governor has found this sweet spot in terms of reopening. And I think it's interesting because, you know, he's going like, 10 days, 14 days behind these other Republican governors. And if you look at the data in North Carolina, in terms of the trends of new cases, things like that, it's just not that much different than where Georgia was, where Tennessee is. And so he has just been able, though, to let them take the heat from the national media, local media. And even though things aren't that much different in North Carolina.
0: Cases are still going up, hospitalizations,
1: But but he's
2: as you say, Steve, he looks like the adult in the room when you see Governor Kemp in Georgia, you know, opening the gyms and the salons and everything else that seems to be risky earlier than anyone else. When you see South Carolina being much more aggressive, Governor McMaster said this week that May 18th, they'll open uh, some of those same sort of crowd intensive stores and, and fitness centers, uh, Tennessee, same thing. So he, he's surrounded by these states that have been so much more aggressive. And in the eyes of some voters, they've been more uh, irresponsible or risk taking. And so I think that the governor is uh, benefiting from all of those things.
1: Well, I was just going to say, I mean, it's interesting when you look at the data, it's like Mecklenburg has the most cases by far of any county, but then at the same time, I could make an argument that Mecklenburg should be one of the first to move into phase two, just based on the hospitalizations going down, the new cases. You know, it's just interesting. There's so many different ways to look at the numbers. And you can make We're a closer case to the peak than
0: other places yeah, are.
1: You can make a case. Mecklenburg has is, is has done a better job fighting this than the state overall. Well, and as
2: you say with those numbers, it is interesting. For example, one of the things that stood out to me is particularly early on in the pandemic and through much of March, you know, Mecklenburg County was 18, 20, 25, creeping up to 30% of the cases. More recently, I think they've been in the 14% range, something like that, perhaps a little bit lower in terms of the percentage of positive cases. Uh, so it really is one of those things, all these numbers, you can look at them in so many different ways, which obviously, Steve, you've reported on the uh, XY axis moving for, the, for the, uh, the health secretary in terms of how some of the numbers are measured. So it, it really does become all in the eye of the beholder, I think.
1: You know, we talked a little bit about Dan Forrest trying to get other Republican statewide leaders to kind of join him. And, and I think he is struggling now to break through but he is laying down this marker of saying reopening is going too slow and you know his opportunity will be if people get tired of the virus or, you know it's not not tired of the virus if it's not front and center and these unemployment numbers are still sky high
2: yeah well i think the first thing is that the unemployment numbers will be sky high and this is not something that is going to be solved in a matter of months and you know, we spend so much time justifiably talking about the scale and scope of the pandemic numbers, but when you look at these unemployment numbers uh, here in North Carolina, I'll just give you an example. The, the lowest number of unemployment claims basically in the last six weeks was on Sunday. It was about 5,800, give or take. Well, before the pandemic, a typical week of North Carolina unemployment claims was 2,500 to 3,000. And you're just seeing that times a zillion almost, day after day after day. 1.1 million people have filed unemployment claims since March 15th. So it's just a scale that we have never seen.
0: Yeah. And what, do, what happens with the state's ability to keep on paying those, those claims?
2: Well, watch this fight. Uh, North Carolina has one of the lowest maximum payouts for unemployment. It's $350 a week. Now, that's being padded considerably right now with the coronavirus funding that bumps that up plus $600. But that ends at the end of July. There's already a conversation in the legislature, should they go from $350 to $400 for the max? I mean, you know, $50 is is not a whole lot, obviously. Uh, So if that's a difficult conversation, and yet you have all of these hundreds of thousands of people that we're talking about, Uh, trying to figure out what to do next. You're about to get into a, a very heated political debate, I think, as you come upon an election.
0: And that's where we'll leave it. Many thanks to Eric Spanberg of the Charlotte Business Journal and Steve Harrison, of course, helping us navigate North Carolina politics amid the coronavirus pandemic as political reporter for WFAE. Happy to help, Lisa. That concludes today's episode of Inside Politics. For continued coverage of the coronavirus outbreak and its impact on Charlotte, go to WFAE.org. And you can listen to this podcast every other Thursday and subscribe to Inside Politics, the RNC in Charlotte, for free on Apple Podcasts, NPR One, and WFAE.org slash Inside Politics. If you like the episode, make sure to give it a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Please take care and stay safe. Until next time, I'm Lisa Worf. Catch you real soon on Inside Politics, the RNC in Charlotte.